Welcome back to Case of the Sunday Scaries. I'm Elise. And I'm Annie. And Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. Merry Christmas. Merry Watch Christmas. we get copyright. Right. <laughs> we do not own the rights to that song. There. There's no disclaimer. We <laughs> See with a circle around it. <laughs> TM. This is coming out on Christmas Day. So I hope you guys are having a wonderful holiday, whatever holiday it is that you celebrate. Do you have anything that your family does every year? I always go back to Indiana. In my whole 29 years of living, there has only been one year I have not made the travel back. It was last year, and I cried the whole the whole day because it was just horrible to me. I think just being around family is our number one tradition. What's yours? Well, it's easy to get to Alaska <laughs> in winter. My dad sent me a video of him um, snow plowing, and they've gotten like just record amount of snow this year. But I guess I can actually say this. When you guys are listening to this, I will be driving to Nebraska to visit my sister and completely surprising her. So I will be walking in Christmas Day. And I'm very, very excited because now we only live, I think it's like a six-hour drive apart. So me and Gracie, the cat's going to stay back because cats are pretty self-sufficient. And he is terrible to travel with. <laughs> um, we'll have to talk about that was almost a true crime story when I Bruce? had to fly with him. Yeah. Oh gosh. That's a story for another day. We're talking about holiday stories. <laughs> but I will be, um, as you guys are listening to this, perhaps walking in to surprise my sister and her husband and stepson. So I'm really, really excited about that. So maybe that will be a new tradition. But the tradition that sticks out the most to me is we ate lasagna on Christmas. Lasagna? Yeah, I've never heard of anyone doing that. I haven't and either. It, it was the only time of year that my mom made it because obviously it's kind of a tedious dish to make. And now I've adapted it and made like my own with zucchini noodles. Yum. So I will be probably making that and bringing that along with because I don't know what she's having. But Christmas to me is not Christmas without lasagna. <laughs> We're not even like Italian. I don't know how that became a tradition. I love it. You got to carry that on. All right. Favorite holiday song. Oh, Mariah Carey. All I want for Christmas is you. Typical, Annie. I know. Typical. I'm basic. What's yours? Yours is going to be something extravagant. I can feel it. No, not extravagant. I love Mary Did You Know, especially the pentatonics. Version. Oh, that one gives me goosebumps. Their voices are stunning. I do still love a little NSYNC Christmas album. Gets me hyped for the holidays and like decorating a tree. And then favorite Christmas thing that you don't have to feel guilty about eating in great quantities around the holidays. My mom, so my dad's side of the family is Slovakian. So my mom has now made nut roll every year, which is like a little pastry, homemade dough, really good um, ground up nuts. I think that's it. It's not super sweet or like... Um, it's more savory, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Yeah, it is savory. But that's it's so right. fun because she only makes it once a year. So she makes like 20 rolls and I put some in my suitcase. I'm like, they're coming with me <laughs> and I freeze them. And then I have like a little bit of holiday cheer throughout the year. What's yours? Oh, I love that. Probably my grandma's molasses cookies. I'm not a big overly sweet person. I don't do pie. I'm not a huge pastry person. But those have the perfect balance between a little bit of spice and all the kind of holiday flavors, ginger and cinnamon and clove and all the yumminess. And then I just need to put a little scoop of vanilla ice cream in between two of those warm cookies. My mouth is watering. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we'll do a trade-off. I love that. You bring me a nut roll, I'll make you some molasses cookies. Also, you know, Elise, I love my TikToks. Oh, boy. Um, I just saw a TikTok that said, <laughs> if you always crave sweet things, you have a parasite. And I always crave sweet things. 
And then molasses made my mouth water. I'm like, the parasites. It's not me. It's the parasite. Annie, I think there's an entirely different reason why you might be having some sugar creep. I think so. Real quickly, for those of our uh, listeners who don't know, I am with child. I didn't know you were going to say it. I am. Um, it's kind of funny because I was talking to Derek a few months ago. And I was like, isn't it weird? There's like a spine in my belly, like a bag of bones. And he was like, can we never refer to our child as just like a bag of bones in your belly? I was like, okay, fair, fair. Went a little okay, off a limb on that one. <laughs> okay, well, now that you're saying it, I have to tell you guys, Annie and I were having our little business meeting. Her husband was helping install some lights for the podcast studio. And she just waits to the end of me rattling off all these things that we need to do, what cases are coming up, just business. She goes, well, I have some news quietly. And immediately Elise looks at my belly and I'm wearing this like Sherpa that's covering my whole body. <laughs> She's like, we're going to have a little, a little case in Sunday scares, baby. And she goes, I'm making a onesie. And it felt like that Shrek, whatever donkey goes. And in the morning, I'm making waffles. <laughs> I was so excited. I think I cried. Now that you said that, Annie will, against her will, be taking a little maternity leave. We are going to be pre-recording a lot of episodes. We're working on that now, but she needs some time home with baby. And I will just be doing interviews and talking about cases on my lonesome. I love it. We have a lot coming up. She better subscribe to the podcast or else she's going to be grounded. She comes out yep. the womb. I'm like, one more listener. Hey, I'll get her an iPhone. <laughs> Oh, well, that's Esther's. I've been holding that secret in with Annie. She's been holding it a lot longer than I have, obviously. But yeah, we have a new little scary squad member on the way. And now we go from happy and holiday talk to bringing you right back down. Because Annie, of course, this is a true crime podcast. So I'm going to turn over the mic to you to talk about your case today. My poor little co-host that is under the weather. So if you hear her coughing, sneezing, mind your business. She is pregnant. She can't even take so everyone be nice to her if her voice sounds a little bit off or well i won't do anything about it but i will be happy with you maybe they're into like the raspy voice oh yes you could have a little sultry voice today and here we go i do have quite a case for everyone but before we jump in there's been a few true crime headlines circulating kind of those headlines that make you go wait what did i just read and the first one gives me full csi miami vibes i used to be obsessed with CSI Miami, so much so that one year for Christmas, I got the full DVD collection, put it on my little TV stand in my room, and I was like madly in love with Horatio Kane. <laughs> yes, I loved him. I loved his one-liners. Like he would find a foot in the sand and just glare into the camera and be like, "Something is a foot," and I would like faint with love. Oh, I love you, Horatio. She was a ginger lover before the podcast even started. It's fate, Annie. Truly. But this headline that I read was woman's body found wrapped in trash bag floating off coast of Egmont Key, FBI investigating. Witnesses who found the body said they were spear fishing and went for a dive. And as they headed to the next spot, they found a trash bag. Assuming it was trash, they tried to pick it up, but then realized it was not trash. They cut to the plastic and canvas bag and they saw skin and what they believed to be a bra strap or a bikini. The witnesses said they made the distress call shortly after that. And according to police, the woman's remains were discovered 13 miles off the coast of St. Petersburg. This obviously is foul play, but wild. That does sound like the beginning of an episode, like where you see the car come up, crime scene unit, and they get out. And, you know, there's these do-gooders that thought they were picking up some trash. And it right. turns out to be a woman's body. It's too soon to know her identity and everything. 
Yeah, at the point of this recording, it's too soon. I suspect it's going to take them a while because, unfortunately, whenever bodies are found in bodies of water, it's really hard to identify them. Right. But sending all the good vibes down to Florida, where all the crazy things happen, and hopefully this woman can get her identity back. We'll keep everyone posted. The other headline I read was, Connecticut man who vanished a decade ago found dead after living under a new name in New York. Elise, you actually sent me this one. This is wild. Robert Hoagland was reported missing in Newton, Connecticut on July 29, 2013, after he failed to pick up a family member from the airport and did not show up to work. That's per NBC News. His car, wallet, cell phone, and medication were all found left at his house, and police reported that he was last spotted at a gas station in town. His disappearance launched a high-profile nationwide investigation with people from around the U.S. reporting sightings of him, and he was even featured on the investigation discovery show Disappear, which I also love. No one knew what happened to Robert until this month when the sheriff's department in Sullivan County, New York, found him dead at a residence in Rock Hill. He had been going under the fake name Richard King at the time, and that's according to New Haven news station WTNA News 8. There currently are no signs of foul play, but his body has been sent to the Sullivan County coroner for an autopsy to determine his cause of death. Once again, wild headline. This man goes missing. He's found sadly dead, living under a fake name. I don't know what would make someone want to start a totally new life, but... Yeah, did he get a new wife, come into money? Like, what is happening here? We shall see. You know, I'm not big on conspiracy theories, except the Denver airport still freaks me out, thanks to you. But anytime that you hear about someone just, like, starting over, I'm like, who was involved? Was he in the witness protection program? Why didn't he go to the airport that day? Where's his new wife? Where's the money hiding? Tell me everything. <laughs> and anytime it's on the East Coast, I immediately think politics. Rightfully so. I just sum up all 13 states and like politics all the way down to uh, South Carolina. Yeah, leave Florida out of this because they have their own political They have system. enough going on. <laughs> Our last headline is no evidence found in excavation at Iowa site after woman claimed father was a serial killer. We talked about this a little bit a few weeks ago. This woman came forward and said that her late father was a serial killer. She claimed that she helped bury the bodies along with her siblings, and she gave police this area to look at. It was, I think, like 40 acres. After digging around this 40 acres, the State Department of Public Safety said, after exhaustive efforts, no evidence or other items of concern were recovered, and the investigation is over. I'm still stumped, because why would you want to come forward unless you want the notoriety, right? I get it. Well, people I mean, we had, and I'm sure we'll cover this case at some point, of that girl that faked an entire, like, kidnapping and ha- just because she wanted to go hook up with another guy away from her husband. So people do crazy stuff. They involve themselves in cases. They confessed, my goodness, to things that they didn't even do to get involved. So if she is lying, you have to question, like, what kind of headspace are you in to make up this? But also, how much money is she going to owe? I didn't even think about that. The cost of an excavation to have people and police officers, and I don't even know what the people are called, not even just crime scene people, but like anthropologists and all that that have to be present to make sure they're sifting through all this dirt and stuff properly. Can you imagine the cost of this? Because you hear when a child goes missing, it could cost millions of dollars in the searching and everything else. So I hope, I guess I hope she is lying because I hope there's not a serial killer and, and bodies that have gone unidentified, but also for her sake, therapy is a lot cheaper than what you're about to be paying. Oh, yeah. 
And I remember reading the articles that said that if it were true, he supposedly killed like 50 people. That would make him the most prolific serial killer to date. I don't know. I'm still kind of like, maybe she said the wrong location on accident. Like if she really was a kid, easy to forget. But we'll keep everyone posted because that is just wild. I mean, she said her siblings. Yeah, one sibling came out and said they were pretty mad about it, that she involved them. Oh, yeah, that's not good. Uh Uh-uh. Well, we need to follow up on that because, I mean, they said it's closed, but now I want to know if she's going to face any legal action for all those man hours and equipment and everything else. This was all fabricated. You know, I'm not big on lie detector tests, but in situations like this, I think they're smart. At least you have like a starting knowledge of suspicion. This sounds really suspicious. Put her on the lie detector. Yeah, we'll see. We'll keep everyone posted throughout our episodes, of course, but also our Instagram handle at a case of the Sunday Scaries. We say every episode. You're probably sick of hearing it by now, so I'm just going to jump into our case. (laughs) Go ahead. The case I am covering today is about an East Coast teen named Karen Stitz, who had recently moved from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to sunny California to live with her father and brother. Karen was 15 years old at the time of this awful crime. She was a Leo, and from what I've read, she was a Leo through and through. Vibrant, confident, big-hearted. Our fellow uh, Scary Squad podcast hosts, also a Leo, so just the best of everything. That's me. The year was 1982, and Karen was a sophomore attending Palo Alto High, which, in my opinion, is like Laguna Beach. California high school in the 80s. I picture everyone has bleach blonde hair, and they arrive on, like, surfboards. Just picturesque. Crimped hair, not only that, back home to the gods. And Aquanet is mixed with salt air. Yes. Karen loved school. She really enjoyed it, and she quickly made friends with all the locals. One classmate and friend named Maureen Larson said the following. Karen was a friendly, upbeat girl with a big smile who quickly got to know her new schoolmates and was quite social. I was impressed with how this East Coast transplant was adjusting to her new life here. Another person whom Karen made a profound impact on was a boy named Michael Calhoun. We've all either had a Michael or been a Michael, or both, at one point. He had a huge crush on Karen. When a reporter asked Michael to describe her, he said, Her smile could light up the darkest of rooms, her beautiful feathered blonde hair and the way she spoke. I won't say it was an accent per se, but it was different than any other girl I knew. Oh, well, that's a really nice way to be described, especially as a high schooler. Ideal. Michael lived around the corner from Karen in Palo Alto. She had actually been dating one of his best friends named Jimmy. So initially, he respected it. He stayed clear of dating her, but he was completely smitten. That is so sad to me. It's really sad. I'm just picturing them like having a pizza night. And he's just biting into his pepperoni pizza, staring at his best friend, canoodling with the girl of his dreams across the living room. Like, I picture this all in my head. I feel bad for poor Michael. He even said that um, he was describing their relationship, Jimmy and Karen's. And he said, instead of singing Rick Springfield's song, Jesse's Girl, I was singing, I want Jimmy's girl. Like this guy, and he was talking to a reporter this year or last year, so it was present day, but just he still had all these feelings for her. And it just is really heartbreaking because the good news is for Michael, when Karen and Jimmy broke up, Michael got his chance. He started dating her. He really fell hard for her. He said that she was his first true love. They did decide to take a break from their relationship during the summer, but Karen wanted to explore getting back together once they returned to school. As a token of her promise, she let him keep a ring of hers was a copper ring and had her name on it. And to this day, Michael still has it. 
You're killing me. I know this is not a love podcast, though, because sadly, Michael would never get the chance to date his dream girl again. It was the evening of Thursday, September 2nd, 1982, and Karen took a bus from her home in Palo Alto to Sunnyvale to meet her 17-year-old boyfriend, David Woods. Remember, her and Michael were on this break. This was about a 20-minute bus drive and not unusual for Karen. She was super independent. She had that East Coast street smart. So even though she was 15, this was not out of the ordinary. Well, plus this is the 80s. Yeah. The two met between 8 and 9 p.m. at the 7-Eleven before heading to nearby Golfland, then a stroll to nearby Ponderosa Elementary School. Around midnight, police say that David walked Karen toward the bus stop, and she was last seen south of the intersection walking toward that bus stop on El Camino Road. Some might think that this was kind of a dick mood of David to not take her all the way to the bus stop, but he had a strict curfew. I was one of those kids with a very strict curfew, and at that point in your life, just getting home, like, on the dot is so important. It kind of becomes your everything. So I understand why David would just be like, okay, I'm seeing you walk. You're good. I'm going to get into my car and panically drive home. Right. I have found no evidence that Karen was reported missing that night after making it home. This happened in the 80s, so it makes it a little bit trickier to kind of track down those details. But what we do know is that at approximately 1045 a.m. on September 3rd, the following day, Stephen Bound, a truck driver, was making a delivery to the Woolworth Garden Center. This location was about 100 yards away from that bus stop that Karen was heading to. During his delivery, Stephen saw what he believed was a nude female lying in the bushes at the base of a cinder block retaining wall along the Garden Center driveway. He immediately contacted the Woolworth Garden Center management, who then called the Sunnyvale Department of Public Safety. Officers quickly arrived on the scene, and it was determined that the nude female was deceased and she had numerous stab wounds. It was also later determined that it was, in fact, 15-year-old Karen Stitz. I hate this story. It's going to get worse. Not to bring you down, but you're to hold on to your pants. The scene was processed for evidence, and items located around and on the body were collected. Karen's wrists were bound behind her back with what was later determined to be her own shirt. A dark leather jacket, also confirmed to belong to Karen, was tied around her left ankle. There was a bloodstain found on top of the cinder block wall just above her body, and the medical examiner conducted Karen's autopsy, and while doing that, he collected vaginal swabs from her and identified a total of 59 stab wounds. That's personal. That has to be personal. That's overkill. My exact thought. These 59 stab wounds were on her neck, chest, abdomen, and back. The next stab wounds punctured her larynx, trachea, and esophagus. 18 of the chest stab wounds perforated Karen's heart, and 10 perforated her lungs. The medical examiner did determine her cause of death to be stab wounds to the neck and chest. It was also discovered that she had been sexually assaulted. There was semen found on her body. A review of the crime scene photos and videos showed that leaves and dirt around her feet had been disturbed and kicked, And this is suggesting that she was alive when her body was left there. She was literally fighting for her life. After that many stab wounds? It's unfathomable, truly. Along with these details, it appeared that her murder was committed while the perpetrator was engaged in the commission of a kidnapping. This might not seem super significant, but in California, it allows the suspect to be hit with additional charges. So we have sexual assault, the murder, and the kidnapping. Because she's underage, right? Yes, yes. Got it, okay. What they are thinking happened was that Karen was walking back to the bus stop 
David left. Someone then attempted to kidnap her, and perhaps she began putting up a fight. This is when she was sexually assaulted and murdered. It's a bit shocking to me because I mentioned that the crime scene was 100 yards away from the bus stop and from this location for the delivery driver, but there is a white truck involved, and I'll get into that in a little bit. Like you said, Elise, this crime feels so personal to me. We hear a lot of times that when the perpetrator knows the victim, it's always overkill. It's a messier crime scene. My first thought while reading it was, oh, the suspect knows her and knows her pretty well. Absolutely. I'm going, let's go talk to the new boyfriend. Ding, ding, ding. Doing their due diligence, investigators focus on the last person who saw Karen alive, 17-year-old David Woods. David is immediately looked at as a suspect, both by law enforcement, but also by the public, especially those close to Karen. Remember, they were both in high school. They were young. They ran around the same friend group, and it was public knowledge that they both were on a date that night. Even though he was considered a suspect and person of interest, investigators could never gather enough evidence against David to take him to trial. I talked about semen. Just so that I'm understanding this kind of geographical area, do we know how long this bus ride would be from her hometown to see this new boy? 20 minutes. And they both attended Palo Alto. They both attended the same high school. I see. Okay, I must have missed that part because I was thinking like these are two totally different towns, but if they're going to the same high school, running around the same people, then Mm -hmm. that would make sense that people were aware that they were on a date. For sure. Good question. Good question, student Elise. (laughs) So I talked earlier about how there was semen and blood found at the crime scene, but this was the 80s. DNA testing was in its infancy. So the case goes cold. David was officially ruled out as a suspect in the early 2000s when investigators sent those samples of blood and semen found at the scene and on Karen's body to a lab who was using brand spanking new DNA technology and equipment. And they were able to fully clear David of any involvement. It helps David's case. It does not help Karen's at all. After clearing David, the DNA profile from the cinder block wall and the victim's jacket was entered into CODIS and no matches were hit. So if you don't know what CODIS is, it's the FBI's DNA database. Anytime a crime happens, they can upload whatever DNA they have. And the first goal, I think, always is to get a hit. The second goal is at least it's stored somewhere so that in the future, if that perpetrator commits a crime, then they could potentially get a hit later. A lot has happened over the past 40 years. For one, Karen's father... I just felt really old when you said the 80s were 40 years ago. It's hard to believe. It's already 2022. I know this is this is almost almost the new year. It's almost 2023. Oh, my goodness. But one of the sad things that happened over the past 40 years was that Karen's father and oldest sister both died without ever finding out what happened to the daughter. Um, and one positive thing that's happened over the past 40 years is changing technology. We talk a lot about it on the podcast, particularly when that technology pertains to DNA. And this can perhaps bring a cold case back to life. Do you see where I'm going here? Wait a minute, Annie. It's not a cold case, baby. Nearly 40 years after Karen's murder happened, on August 2nd, 2022 of this year, her aunt received a call from Sunnyvale Police Detective Matt Hutchinson. He was on the Hawaiian island of Maui and informed the aunt that they had just arrested a man who was believed to be the man who abducted, sexually assaulted, and brutally killed Karen. Can you imagine getting that call? No. I think at some point, again, I've never been in this situation, but at some point you would almost just give up hope that anything would yes. come of it. You lose the hope that she's ever going to get justice or that you're ever going to have closure in this case. So to get that call, oh, 
I bet it was just incredible. It was incredible for Karen's aunt. If you tell me that this was Michael, I'm going to I'm going to absolutely quit this podcast. It's not Michael. He's love struck. The man arrested was named Gary Jean Ramirez, and he was living on the island of Maui. That piece of information infuriates me because not only did he allegedly kill this 15 year old, he went on to live in freaking Hawaii and yeah, he got married twice. Life. Yeah. And he had he has two daughters. He truly lived his life like nothing happened. Meanwhile, Karen is gone and her family is shattered. Gary's brother, Rudy, did an interview with the Bay Area News shortly after Gary was arrested. and He gave a little bit of background into their lives. Gary and Rudy grew up in a dysfunctional family, his words, not mine, in Fresno, California, and they had two brothers. So in total, there were four boys. Gary was described as being the favorite son. He was not violent. He wasn't any kind of dysfunctional delinquent. His brother said that he would never even hurt a fly. Gary joined the Air Force and lived a pretty normal life. He has no known priors of any kind of criminal record. He has never even been busted for shoplifting, nothing like that. That's something that you don't hear every day. No, you always hear like that there was some indication, something that happened. You know, they're burning ants with a microscope. They're doing something, even on like the most minute level. And this guy was just little church boy, it seems like. Yeah, that's what his brother made him made him out to be. And like I said, no criminal background or record. He moved to Maui in the late 1980s, a few years after Karen's murder. When he was arrested back in August, police knocked on his door. He opens it. The only thing out of his mouth was, oh my gosh. He appeared shocked and he's now 75 years old. So if he did do this, he would have been around 35 years old at the time of Karen's murder. What a piece of shit. I want to get into why Gary is suspect number one, because how he's connected to this crime is very similar to the Golden State Killer and how Joseph D'Angelo was connected to his crimes decades after they happened. The main hero in this case is a man named Detective Matt Hutchinson. He's the detective who delivered the news to Karen's aunt that he had Gary in custody. Detective Hutchinson grew up in Sunnyvale, where Karen met David that night. He grew up being somewhat familiar with the case. The case is actually older than he is. It's an almost 40-year-old cold case, and the detective is 38. But when the case was reopened in 2014 by the district attorney, it caught the attention of Detective Hutchinson, and he made it his whole mission to craft the case and put someone behind bars. The detective teamed up with a genealogist. If you're not familiar, a genealogist is a person who specializes in tracing lines of family descent. We talk a little bit about this in our uh, mini-sode over cases cracked by DNA technology. In evidence, there was a good amount of DNA. We have the blood from Karen's leather jacket, the blood found on that four-foot cinder block wall, and there was semen. While the DNA is being looked at and tested, which is not a quick process, I learned, the detective was doing his own work on the side. He heard from a source, which is not disclosed anywhere. That source is completely a private person. No names are listed, anything like that that the son of a woman named Rose Ramirez may have committed the murder of Karen Stitt. This piece of information is what led the detective to start looking into the Ramirez family. Using publicly available databases, Detective Hutchinson was able to confirm that yes, Rose Ramirez lived in Fresno, California, which is roughly 160 miles from Sunnyvale, and that she did have four sons. What the detective did next is genius. I have never heard of a detective using an obituary as a source of family lineage, but that's exactly what this detective did. He looked at the obituary of Rose, who passed away in 2012, and her husband, who passed away in 2019. And these obituaries not only named the four sons, but also named the grandchildren. 
this really expedited the investigation because he now has names. And I mean, the obituary piece is just wild to me. He's a good detective. That's so smart. Last year in 2021, Detective Hutchinson used law enforcement and once again, publicly available databases and confirmed that all four male sons of Rose were still alive. None of those four sons had DNA profiles in CODIS. I think that probably sparked some hope because you could quickly dismiss the sons if they all had records and none of them matched that DNA that was in there. But to hear like, okay, they're alive. She did have four sons. So that source of information was correct with one thing. And there's no DNA. Kind of hopeful. Detective Hutchinson then starts to work to determine which of the four sons could have committed the crime. Two were quickly dismissed. Not really sure why. I'm guessing that they weren't in the area at that time, but that's just my opinion. And that left two possibilities, Merrick and Gary. Detective Hutchinson wasn't able to rule out Merrick, so he focused his attention on Gary, and he was hoping to either, number one, rule him out as well, or, number two, match him to the crime. I have to pause here. So at least if we're trying to find out information about someone, where's the first place that we go to look? Their garbage can. <laughs> no, social media. Elisa's just creeping in these dumpsters. Like, I got to find information. <laughs> the trash. Not where I thought we were going with that. <laughs> I meant that so wholeheartedly, too. I'm like, that's help, dude. You get the DNA. You get You have your detective hat on. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, social media. I'm also going to creep in people on that. <laughs> and that's exactly where Detective Hutchinson went. He went to Facebook and he found a grandchild of Rose. Think back. That obituary listed all those names out. And he somehow got her to submit a sample of DNA. I'm not sure how. I think there's one of two options. First, he could have said, I'm trying to clear your family. Can I have some DNA? Second, he may have said, listen, there's this cold case happening and it might match someone that you know. Can you help me out? Either way, he was convincing because she did How it. would you respond to that? If someone called you, and I mean, they're not going to give a ton of information away, I would imagine. I'd say get a warrant. I've been waiting to use that line my whole life, Elise. <laughs> as goody two-shoes is like just over here waiting to be a criminal i like want someone to come ask for my dna you're not getting it i can't imagine let's say you submitted could you imagine the holidays after she did this she's just looking at everyone like what did you do what did you do well glad you brought that up because this was a hit he hit the gold mine when he asked this particular grandchild for her dna because it said that her biological father's DNA was a very strong statistical support to what they had in CODIS. Here's what's even wilder. Do you know the chances of Detective Hutchinson picking a person with a DNA profile that matched what they had in CODIS? Like one in a million, one in a trillion? Oh, I'm sure it's even more an obscene number than that. It's one in 24.1 septillion. What the heck is septillion? It sounds San like a dirty little centipede. It sounds like a, a reptile. It does. <laughs> Santa Clara County District Attorney Barbara Cathart said the probability of selecting an unrelated individual from the population at random that has this DNA profile is one in 24.1 septillion. There, of course, are not that many people on the planet. How many zeros is that? I don't know, but I got I got to <laughs> look, look it up. up. How many zeros are in a sep I want to be a septillionaire. Twenty-four zero. No. Hold on. Yeah. Twenty-four zeros. I can't process that. No, I can't either. That's wild. This detective is the bomb. Based upon this evidence, authorities were able to obtain a search warrant and they flew out to Maui 
where they swabbed Gary's mouth for DNA. That night, a different Sunnyvale detective personally flew back to San Jose. He's like, this is my sample. This is my baby. I am taking this back to the lab. And at about 2.30 a.m. that morning, the crime lab confirmed the match. Detective Hutchinson recalled opening the email with the DNA match. He said, I wanted to scream, but I couldn't because I didn't want to wake up the hotel. So instead, he took a moment to reflect and he opened up his laptop. He clicked on the photo of Karen and he said, we did it. At this point in the investigation, the case relies almost solely on that DNA evidence, which the cold case prosecutor says is overwhelming. So let's kind of take some steps back. They found the DNA at the crime scene. They loaded it up in Dakota. No hits. They get the daughter's DNA. It says, you know, your biological father most likely did this. They fly to Hawaii. They swab Gary's mouth and it matches what's in CODIS. The fact that this guy was living on Hawaii, like he thought he flew the country. He is like peace. Annie, I hate to tell you this. Hawaii is part of the United States. And pregnancy brain. <laughs> he started a new life on America. <laughs> the thing that is so wild to me, too, about this is there could have been so many little things where they wouldn't have gotten this answer. If he had a twin brother, if one of those four boys was a twin of his. I didn't even think about that. If the only thing connected is DNA, now you have two suspects that you can't whittle down after 40 years any more evidence than that, unless one was out of the country in Hawaii. <laughs> But my mom's going to kill me for that one. <laughs> Is Alaska part of the United States? Just yes. wondering. Okay. Hard yes. Perfect. Puerto Rico? Yes. I need to go back to my study geography. Math and geography, not my strong suit. <laughs> but it's just wild that so many little things, if the girl hadn't given her DNA, he probably, there's no way on this one little letter that he would have gotten a warrant. I don't think so. I think it'd be too circumstantial. Yeah. I could write the police right now and say Annie was the person that committed this crime. And I'd say, get a warrant. (laughs) She says, get a warrant. So, yeah, that is incredible. It's going to be really hard, I think, for Gary's defense team to make a case for him because he's now 75 years old. His DNA was found. I read so many articles talking about his bad hip. It said it actually caused him to shrink five inches. I'm like, cool. You have a rotten hip. You're a rotten person if you did this. I could care less about the health of your body. I get that you're old, Gary. Robert Baker and Detective Hutchinson, who both worked together on the case, did confirm that Gary spent time in the Bay Area in the 1980s when Karen was killed. So that also helps their case. Earlier, I mentioned this white truck kind of in passing, but they're looking for tips around this truck to further corroborate the case. But witnesses did say that they saw it near the crime scene back in 1982. So if you have a memory of that let law enforcement know i wonder if there's couldn't they pull like dmv records for all of the truck of that specific they're probably working on that or just I would what think. what was registered to him and his family at the time yeah good call karen's aunt was absolutely floored at this arrest and she was very vocal about it she said karen was a tomboy who grew into a lovely young woman she could have had anything in life but We will never know who she would have become because Gary Ramirez stole her life. With this closure, we hope to be able to move forward in a positive way. I can't not talk about Michael. Okay, before we talk about Michael, you know what's bothering me about this case? That if this man did such a violent, violent crime, like how many times did you say she got stabbed? 59. That is wild. Um, And that's a prolonged kill. Like you can't do that in three minutes. 
it just makes me wonder what else might he be tied to because we all know, yes, he got married. Yes, he had kids, all this stuff. That does not matter. A lot of people do that that are horrible, horrible people. But I don't know. That doesn't sound like a one-off because normally that would be like something so personal and rageful and vindictive. And yet this is supposedly the first time he has ever been in trouble in 75 years. I thought that was super odd as well, because you don't go from like not hurting a fly to viciously killing a 15 year old walking to a bus stop. And in such a personal and drawn out way. 59. Detective Hutchinson actually made a comment saying that they are looking at other crimes because he has the same thought as us. Turns out we're basically thinking the same way as a detective because there's no way that this guy only did this one crime, one and done. Mm -mm. I don't believe it. Just look in the trash cans. You'll find all the information you need in the trash can. Should we talk about Michael now? Oh, God. Go ahead. So after this arrest happened, Michael said the following. I have carried Karen in my heart and soul for over 40 years. I will continue to carry Karen in my heart and soul until my last breath on this earth. I'm just glad that we, her family and friends, can now breathe a sigh of relief that her killer has been named and caught. I hope Karen is resting in peace now. Michael, I hope you're writing poetry because you're just like having a scoo gaga over you and how much you loved her. Well, and you know, I've got to say it's so tragic that she was only 15, but how lucky she was to have been loved so intentionally at such a young age. It's romantic. The other person who loved her was that David Woods, right? The boyfriend who was with her that night. And he made a statement after the arrest as well. Remember, he was under public scrutiny for years. He says that he's always lived with regrets of leaving her alone that night. He said, for 40 years, I have suffered heartache from the horrific loss of a beautiful girl whom I was falling in love with. I hope this brings some closure for her family, myself, and her other loved ones. Well, you, I can't even imagine what his reputation was like for years. From 1982 until early 2000s. Yeah, I, I can't imagine. Everyone's side-eyeing, like, don't date that guy. His last girlfriend went missing, you know. that. And his story, let's be honest, his story sounds suspicious. Oh, yeah. Because it was just, it was his word versus, like, no one's. I mean, there's... No video cameras back then, no security footage right. to confirm that. His mom was probably like, yeah, he did get home one time, but there is an update on where the trial stands today. Gary was expected to have a hearing on October 28th. I'm like 100% sure that got pushed because there is nothing online about it. The killing is considered a capital crime, but Gary will not be facing the death penalty because the district attorney announced in 2020 he will no longer seek it in any prosecutions, which was news to me. From what I read, it sounds like the county and Karen's family is just hoping that he pleads guilty. Karen's aunt said, I will be disappointed if he doesn't take ownership and plead guilty. Gary Ramirez has lived freely with the knowledge of his unfathomable crimes for nearly 40 years. The time for him to bear the consequences is long overdue. And I completely agree with you, Karen's aunt, because he lived his life. He got married. He lived on a beach forever. Like, own up and give the family some closure. It will be really interesting to see what he pleads. I would hope, like you said, I hope for the family's sake that they don't have to go through a trial. I mean, that's ridiculous. Um, but I hope that he's not pleading to anything less. Like, there should be no deals here. When you are that violent against an undeserving 15-year-old, like, you got to spend 40 years of your life, like you said, 
roaming the beaches of Hawaii, having a family. Drinking Mai Tais, like, it's it's, time. Yeah, that's ridiculous. So, goodbye. Goodbye, Gary. Well, thank you for giving me and ending this year with a case with some resolution. That was a nice little holiday gift you gave me. I want to kind of give a little heads up and potentially a trigger warning going into our next few episodes, or I should say my next few episodes. Annie and I discussed how we can use this podcast to really hopefully reach people and educate them. Um, You know, as limited education as my dumpster diving, apparently. Or my geographic knowledge. (laughs) Yeah, we really didn't do our best on this episode, did we? I'm kind of embarrassed. (laughs) But we want to use this as a tool to not only share these victim stories, to get the word out about missing people, but um, where it's appropriate to offer some resources and some help to help prevent some of this stuff from happening or to recognize if some of these behaviors are, um, are worrisome in your own life. With that said, I am starting a three-part series. So far, it's three parts, but we all know I get a little wordy. And we are starting the year off with that episode. If you are someone that has gone through a abusive relationship in any form, it might be a little bit triggering of a series, but I think it is one that I hope people will tune into. I'm going to be starting off the year sharing my story. About 13 years ago, I was in a very coercive and high control abusive relationship that escalated to stalking and harassment. And for the first time, I'm going to share most of the story. Some of it I'm going to keep to myself and to my therapist. But I hope you guys listen to it. Our Again, our goal through this is to not only share my story, share a girl um, named Molly's story that unfortunately did not have a happy ending, and then to have some professionals come on and talk to us about this and what you can do if you find yourself in these situations. So be ready for that. It's going to be a little heavy one. If you wake up on New Year's Day, you have a little hangover, you have the little hang anxiety, maybe skip it. And if not, you can just cry with me throughout the episode because we did already record it and it was a little bit emotional for me. But I do hope that you guys listen and we will see you in 2023. But as always, until then. <laughs>